We continue this morning in the Lord's Prayer, which is, you'll remember, at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a reason for that design, right? The Sermon on the Mount is the banner over, right, the deep architecture of Christian ethics. Right? We are striving under the grace of God to become people who embody the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes. And the Lord's Prayer is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Because prayer, shaped by this prayer, is at the heart of Christian ethics. Prayer, shaped by this prayer, is at the heart of Christian behavior, Christian ethics. And as mentioned before, right, the first three petitions are God-centered, if you will, theocentric. And then the final three petitions, we address our needs. And so this morning we come to the fifth petition. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now you remember last week we looked at the fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. And there's a bit of instruction for us in the very order of the petitions. Bread, then forgiveness. It's as if the structure of the prayer says, what food is to the body, so forgiveness is to the soul. As basic, as essential, as repeatedly necessary as eating is, so basic, so essential, so repeatedly necessary is the forgiveness of sins. Think of that. Do we ask daily for the forgiveness of our sins? Remember that old sort of quaint habit that some of us grew up with where you would kneel by your bedside at night and you would kind of go over your day and you would remember your sins. You would stop and you would reflect and you would catalog and you would examine and you would ask for forgiveness. Our catechisms say that you should ask for particular sin, forgiveness for particular sins particularly. It won't do to just say, Lord, I'm sure there's sin down there somewhere. Please forgive it. It's as essential as eating. So with that, we'll make two points. Forgiveness received. It's, that's in verse 12. I think the bulletin says verse 11. 12a. And then forgiveness given in verses 12b and 14 and 15. So two things, right? Forgiveness received and forgiveness given. So, first, forgiveness received. Forgive us our debts. Right? Now, given that we pray for daily bread, right, we can assume that the other petitions are to be prayed at least as frequently. There's no surprise in that. This is the prayer which shapes all praying. Right? And we are to pray without ceasing. The Christian life is to be an incense offering, a flame offered to God of prayer. A fragrant aroma, Paul says, unto God. So at the very heart of our union with Jesus Christ, union and communion with God in Jesus Christ through the Spirit, what does it look like? Well, it takes the shape of prayer. 
it looks like praying. I've mentioned it a few times, but I'll say it again. Calvin says, prayer is the principal act of piety. Like, it is the chief fundamental thing that Christians do. It is at the heart of Christian ethics. It is at the heart of Christian action. It is at the heart of Christian politics. Prayer is the principal act of piety. And thus prayer, ordered this way, ordered by this prayer, lifts us up to the high and the eternal and the permanent things. I've recommended the the Puritan collection of prayers of Valley of Vision many times from here. Here's a short snippet from another one of their prayers. It's a prayer about prayer. And it says this. In prayer, I launch far out into the eternal world. And on that broad ocean, my soul triumphs over all evils on the shores of mortality. Time, with its gay amusements and its cruel disappointments, never appears so inconsiderate as then. In prayer, I see myself as nothing. And I find my heart going after thee with intensity. And I long with vehement thirst to live for thee. It continues, Blessed be the strong gales of the Spirit which speed me on my way to the new Jerusalem. In prayer, all things here below vanish. And nothing seems important but holiness of heart and the salvation of others. That's just a snippet of how the Puritans prayed and how they thought about praying. Prayer then most basically lifts us up to God, up to heaven, out to eternity, into the age to come. We saw that in the first three petitions. Prayer makes all things here below vanish except for holiness, except for sanctity. Right? The only real tragedy in life is that you do not embody and become a saint. Right? That, the, that sanctity is not wrought in our lives. That's a tragedy. Except for sanctity and the salvation of others. And this petition here focuses on that holiness part. To pray then, to pray daily, to pray hourly, to pray perpetually, forgive us our debts. As the first thing. Think about that. This is the first thing. After bread, this is the chief thing that we pray for when it comes to our spiritual life. The first thing which concerns our spiritual lives, to pray this is to take the posture of a beggar. We are not too proud to beg. Right? It is to say, and it's to say often, it's to say repeatedly to ourselves, I am a sinner. I stand in need of mercy. I need to be forgiven. Now you may think, well, of course. But 
I'm trying to get you to see how radical this is, right? This is to place our sinfulness, right? Not the sinfulness of those people. Not the sins of the culture. Our sinfulness at the center of our self-consciousness, at the center of our prayer. Right? The prayer is not forgive them their debts. It's to place our sinfulness at the center. Oh Lord, forgive us our debts. And almost nobody does this. That's how radical a petition this is. To pray repeatedly, forgive us our debts is to embody the ethos of the Beatitudes. I mean, after all, how does one pray this seriously and earnestly without being poor in spirit? What is it, some sort of an afterthought that we need to be forgiven of our debts? How do you pray this without poverty of soul, without being meek, without mourning, without seeking peace, without purity of heart, without being merciful, without loving one's enemies, without turning the other cheek, without going the extra mile, without blessing those who curse you. How is it then that praying of all things this prayer, this petition for forgiveness, in us has become compatible with so much arrogance and hubris, and rancor, and self-righteousness, and snide condescension, even between Christian people, much less between Christians and others? Well, the answer here, I think, is simple. We just don't see ourselves as great sinners. We just don't. I cannot remember the last time I was in a counseling session where the person thought they were the heart of the problem. Where their consciousness was formed such that they were the chief great sinner in the world. We don't see it. The enormity of our sins before God does not move us. Other people's sins, very much so. Our debts, they don't really seem that big. Right? And this word debts here is important, right? It's, it's basically equivalent to sins or trespasses. But debts highlight something. Right? It's an economic term. Something that needs an accounting, a reckoning, something that requires restitution, a payment that must be made a burden that needs to be lifted from us, right? For great debt is a crushing burden. The larger catechism puts it this way. In the fifth petition, we acknowledge that we and all others are guilty of both original and actual sin and thereby become debtors. There's the word, debtors, to the justice of God and that neither we nor any other creature can make the least satisfaction for the debt. Right? That's the posture of this petition. It's one who owes this debt. So we have an enormous debt, and of ourselves, we cannot make the least dent in satisfying it. Because it's owed to the justice, the intrinsic holiness, the infinite glory of God. 
He is, if you will, the collector of the debt. And so the debt that we have is infinite. Often we see the debt as small because we have a small doctrine of God's splendor and majesty. Once we see God right, then we'll see that our debts are infinite. And this is, this is humbling. It's the humbling plight of those who pray this petition with self-knowledge and with reverence. Forgive us our debts. And thankfully, God, who alone can forgive sins, is infinite in mercy. And it's into that, that oceanic mercy of God in sending forth his Son. Right? That's what satisfies the justice, which pays and discharges the debt, and which lifts from you and me the heavy burden under which we labor. The Son is, we heard this in the New Testament lesson, He is the propitiation, that is the atoning, wrath-bearing sacrifice who pays for the sins of the world. The suffering servant of Isaiah. Remember what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53? The Lord has laid on him, that is, taken our debt, our burden, and placed it on his back. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This awful load, this price paid by Christ to the justice of his Father, this is why salvation is free for you, free for us. In Jesus Christ, then, we have redemption. Redemption's a slave market term. It's an economic term. It means liberation from cruel, indebted bondage. We have that through the forgiveness of sins, through the shedding of his blood. So there's an economy here. And in the economy of redemption, and this is a beautiful thing, forgiveness and grace overwhelm the economy of debt and sin and trespass and burden. There's no proportionality here. The economy of God's mercy overwhelms the dreadful economy of our debts. And so to pray this petition... Forgive us our debts is to be taken into the heart of the everlasting gospel of God our Savior. Right? This is the very heart of the new covenant. Right? Jeremiah says, I will remember their sins no more. I will forgive all their iniquities. This is the good news. But it's better news than we often realize. Because God, in forgiving sins, remembers them no more, we are told. We remember, but God does not remember them. Meaning, not that they escape his knowledge, but he refuses to act in terms of your sins towards you. He remembers that we're dust. He remembers Christ. And thus, this covenantal act, where he commits our sins, if you will, to a kind of oblivion. He doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve, Psalm 103. So forgiveness, in short, is a supernatural act. This is a miraculous action of God toward us. 
It's a miracle of the mercy of the gospel to indebted, burdened, guilty sinners. And so to pray this prayer, to confess our sins daily, across the whole of our lives, looking to Christ who's the friend of sinners, this is to cast yourself into the vortex of the mercy of God. This is to be truly blessed, right? For the psalmist says, blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. So that's forgiveness received. Let's look at forgiveness get, uh, given. We are to pray, forgive us our debts. And then there are three apparently frightful words. Notice them. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, that puts a damper on things. It seems to be completely backwards to us. Forgive us as we have forgiven others. I mean, if it wasn't Jesus saying it, we might be tempted to pull the brother aside. Right? Maybe straighten some things out. After all, how could our being forgiven be suspended on the forgiveness we extend to other people? Again, this is backwards. It seems backwards. What is going on here? I mean, this is not, to be clear, a statement that our forgiveness earns or is the basis of God's forgiveness. I mean, how could it be? We're already in the household in this prayer. God has already been set forth as our Father. We're already being addressed as children. But we cannot be presumptuous, right? People in the house of God get cut off all the time. So there is a warning here, and you can see it in verses 14 and 15. Right? It's the only petition in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus immediately expands on it. It's as if he doesn't want us to be presumptuous about asking for forgiveness. Right? We read here that if we forgive others when they sin against us, our Father will also forgive us. I mean, listen, listen. If we do not forgive others their sins, right? if we maintain a punitive or we hold grudges, our Father will not forgive our sins. The text says that in plain English. And so far from backing off the condition, Jesus doubles down on it. Like if you think you might have misread verse 12 in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus makes clear in verses 14 and 15 right after the Lord's Prayer that, oh, I didn't misread that. And this type of language makes us nervous. Is this some sort of salvation by works? No, it's not. But Jesus means just what he says. The point is clear. If you're living an unforgiving life, you should not expect God to forgive your sins. Right? Habitual unforgiveness, a refusal to forgive this person or that person, is a sign that we haven't grasped the gospel, that we haven't truly repented. There are Christians, I, I, I tell you in all seriousness, who think that they can live with this kind of unforgiveness and enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus disagrees. If we have 
grasp the enormity of our sins against God. We will see the sins of others against us for the relatively minor things that they are. But if we think our sins against God are relatively minor, then we tend to view other sins against us as enormous. This is the order and proportion problem that we always talk about here, only it's in the realm of Christian ethics. You might remember, this is the whole point of the parable of the unforgiving servant who was forgiven an enormous debt, right? I forgave you all of that debt when you pleaded with me. The master in the parable says that. And yet he refused to forgive what was a small debt relative to the debt he was forgiven. Right? The disparity between the debt we owe to God and the relatively trifling debts that others owe to us. This is the root of the unforgiving and the bitter person. It turns out such a person is in fact not the center of the problem or the chief of sinners in their own consciousness. And this is venomous, right? This is poisonous to your soul. It's a soul-destroying lack of perspective. And it creates bitter, bean-counting, remembering, self-righteous people. On the other hand, those who know they've been forgiven much, what does Jesus say about them? They love much. They love a lot. You want to know someone who understands the enormity of their debt before God? Look for someone who is loving. It's all well and good, I suppose, but we might be tempted to say, I am willing to forgive within reason. Within reason. But this person has done me a great wrong. If I forgive, it will only occasion more wrongdoing. You have to fight fire with fire. I'm not going to turn the other cheek. That's only going to promote this action. Forgiveness sends precisely the wrong message. Besides, this is really unforgivable what they've done. To which there are two things to be said. First is this. The one commanding us here, the one we are to imitate, is the one who said, of his murderers, Father, Forgive them. They do not know what they do. He should have said, Father, this is beyond the pale. Right? Do we want to imitate that Christ? Are we even interested in that one? That way? Because that's the heart of what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to get us to be. People who can do that. Do you know what one of the most moving public Christian things I have ever seen in my life is? That African-American community in Charleston, South Carolina. After that mad racist, Dylan Roof went in and slaughtered a bunch of them. Without script or without preparation, within 48 hours at the hearing before the judge, right, with the man there who took their mothers and their fathers and their grandparents and their children from them. 
brokenhearted in grief and mourning, forgiving him in public. Forgiving him in public who had just killed their loved ones and their friends. I know an atheist who said, I am not a Christian believer, but if I ever were to become one, it will be because of that. That's the heart of the Christian gospel on display. Because that's what Jesus did. And secondly, this one, when asked by Peter, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter thought he was being generous. The rabbis of his day thought three or four times was like the right number. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. C.S. Lewis summarizes this well. He says this. He says, no part of Jesus' teaching is clearer. I mean, there's nothing ambiguous here. No part's clearer, he says, and there are no exceptions to it. He doesn't say, this is Lewis now, he doesn't say we are to forgive other people's sins provided they're not too frightful. As long as they're not too frightful. I mean, as long as they don't threaten your life and limb and your stuff. Sure. Provided they're not too frightful, Lewis says, or anything of that sort, we are to forgive them all. However spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated, and if we don't, Lewis goes on, we shall be forgiven none of our own. In short, the absence of a forgiving spirit is a sign that true repentance is missing. A forgiving spirit even for grave offenses. Now, this is an important caveat. We are not talking here about struggling to forgive. No one's pretending that this is easy. We're not talking about desiring to work through unforgiveness and stumbling at it. We are talking about the type of person who just flat out refuses to forgive and persists in that. About such a person, we must soberly confess. They do not belong to Jesus Christ. A proud general once told Wesley, John Wesley, this is the kind of thing proud generals say. This is how you become a proud general. He said, I never forgive. To which Wesley said, then I hope, sir, that you never sin. Right? The Puritan uh, Thomas Watson has a whole wonderful book on the Lord's Prayer. He says, one can go to hell for not forgiving, just as one can go for not believing. That's very important to get, right, what's going on here. You can, if I held the Apostles' Creed up in front of you and you said, yep, I believe every, every article in it with my whole heart, and you are yet unforgiving in your relationships, you can still go to hell. In fact, Spurgeon said, listen to this. He said, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. Think about that. I'm going to come down here in a minute. And we're going to all stand up and we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. 
Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others. And if you are not forgiving other people, if you're holding 5 and 10 and 15 and 20-year grudges, you are reading out your own death warrant, Spurgeon says. You are basically telling God, I, will, I do not want to be forgiven. So the point is simply that forgiven people forgive others. They do it from the heart. And so they have confidence to ask God to continue to forgive them. Right? Not on the basis of, but just like we have forgiven others. You want to be sure God's forgiven your sins? Forgive some people around you their sins. There's no serious prayer for forgiveness that is not on the lips of a forgiver. And this condition here, unless you forgive, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. This condition, it needs to be said, is not because God is reluctant or peevish or unwilling. Quite the contrary, God delights to forgive sinners. It's a cause of great joy in heaven when he does so. We must remember that. This is not because God is reluctant to forgive sins. So do not despair, do not lose hope over your sins, even if you're struggling to forgive others. God is a forgiving God. And he will give you the grace to forgive others so that you have confidence to ask him to forgive your sins. Remember when he shows his infinite glory to Moses, he passes by and he says, the Lord God, a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. God loves to designate himself this way. In Isaiah, he says, I am, I am he. Notice the I am reference there to the God of the Exodus, right? I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. I hope you noticed that marvelous call to worship from Micah this morning. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. And then notice how it closes. He will tread our iniquities underfoot You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. So what we are called to then is to be like that God, right? To reflect the family likeness, the perfection of the Father. And of course, this can only be done if we have first genuinely received pardon for our own enormous debt, for our daily accumulated debts. It is true, God has to forgive us first to enable us to forgive others. And so Paul, drawing on this, says to the New Testament community, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Blessed are those who, having been forgiven, forgive others, for they shall continue to be forgiven. Amen.